Today I'm going to be speaking on the subject of evangelism. In fact, my title is The Church and Her Glorious Message. But the approach that I'm going to take today is a little bit different than you might expect when you're hearing a message about evangelism. Now, I have nothing against conventional messages about evangelism. In fact, I have preached them in the past. I will probably preach them in the future. I have benefited from them. And when I say conventional methods of evangelism, uh, what I mean by that is that the preacher will get to the pulpit and he will say, and the reason that we should evangelize is because we are commanded to evangelize the Lord Jesus Christ said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Or maybe you'll hear a message on evangelism which will spell out the brilliant logic of Romans chapter 10, asking the question, how will they hear without a preacher? And the answer is, they won't hear without a preacher. I have nothing against that approach. That's a conventional approach. Or there's the promise of beautiful feet that comes from Isaiah chapter 52 and Romans chapter 10. Or maybe you'll hear a message on evangelism which will talk about the example of the Lord Jesus and how he spoke to the woman at the well or how he spoke to Zacchaeus. We have also a conventional approach to motivating people to evangelize from the Apostle Paul who said that I could wish that I myself were accursed for my kinsmen according to the flesh. The, the example that he gave of a motive of wanting to see people saved. And let's not forget about how we need to be equipped as apologists. Remember that we who are going to give the gospel need to be ready to give an answer to anybody who would ask us the reason for the hope that is within us and to do it with meekness and with fear. Other messages on evangelism that I have heard talk about the watchman on the wall with the bloody hands who failed to warn his friends. There's nothing wrong with any of these methods. I'm in favor of all of them. But today we're going to look at evangelism from a slightly different perspective. We are going to study this topic today in reference to restoration. Restoration. Now what is restoration? Restoration means getting things back to the way that they used to be. Uh, we live in a fallen world that is filled with broken people. Uh, you know that because you live in this fallen world and you yourself are one of these broken people. And we all are in need of restoration. We're all in need of restoration. Uh, I think of a story, and this is a true story, unlike the one of Harry visiting the hospital. This is a true story. I was getting my hair cut uh, a few years back, and my barber, um, who uh, is, is normally very good, while he was cutting my hair, one of his friends walked into the barber shop and sat directly behind him. So here's the barber chair, there's the mirror, here's my barber, and here's his friend. And I kid you not, as he was cutting my hair, he turned around and had a conversation with his friend who was sitting beside him. So I'm looking into the mirror, he's working on my head, and I'm saying to myself as he is cutting, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be, and after the haircut was over, I was in need of restoration. I needed things to go back the way that they were before. Well, that's the world that we live in. Uh, things are, are falling apart. Entropy has an undefeated record. 
fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. And you can make a really good living in this world if you can replace a hip or if you can repair a roof or if you can repair a fender. This world is falling apart. And spiritually speaking, you know that this is true as well. The reason why we live in a broken world is because of sin. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, We live in a sin-cursed world where things get old, and people get sick, and people people die. Job put it this way, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. But when I speak of restoration as it applies to evangelism, I'm not just talking about our bodies or our relationships or our finances, but I'm talking about our relationship with God. In fact, I would say the area where we need restoration the most is the one which we pay attention to the least. And that is because of our sins, we are separated from God and we need things to go back to the way that they were in the Garden of Eden when we had a relationship with God. And so even though we are living in this world, which as as we look at the outward indicators, things are not coming back, we know that through the power of the gospel, things can come back, and that is the power of God unto salvation, which is the gospel. And so what I would like to do today from the book of 2 Kings chapter 8 is I would like to illustrate. I would like to illustrate how restoration works and how the gospel can be applied to this. But allow me first to open us in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that what we will read in the Bible is you speaking. And so, Lord, as the Bible is read today and as I explain the word, Lord, may we hear your voice by your spirit Lord, we who are living in this broken world, Lord, know that we need restoration. We know, Lord, that you alone can give it. And, Lord, we know that you give it through the power of the gospel. And, Lord, when we think of people who are lost and who are dying and who will be damned unless they hear this message, Lord, may we today uh, gain insight and, Lord, may we gain a burden to reach the lost and to bring restoration to their souls through the gospel which we know and which has saved us. Lord, give us now the courage to take it to others. Lord, use me as I deliver this message today and help these your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today our text comes from 2 Kings chapter 8 and we are going to use this text to demonstrate, to demonstrate how restoration works. 2 Kings chapter 8 beginning to read in verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or travel wherever you can. For the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Uh, This woman that we read about here in 2 Kings chapter 8, we were introduced to her back in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. She is a woman from Shunem, and she is referred to as the Shunammite woman. 
Uh, her story is this. Is she and her husband were married, living in the region of Shunem. She knew that the prophet Elisha from time to time would travel in their direction. Uh, they were fairly wealthy people. And so what the woman and her husband did is they built a room on the roof of their house so that when the prophet would pass by, he would have a place to stay. And uh, Elisha was very grateful for this. And so he went to the woman and he said, you have done this for me. Is there anything that I can do for you? And the woman said, I have everything that I need. I dwell among my people. I don't need anything at all. But Elisha's assistant, a man by the name of Gehazi, said, I know something this woman needs that she doesn't have. Uh, She's getting up in years, and her husband is already an old man. They don't have any children. So Elisha went to the woman and said, a year from now, you're going to have a son. Fade in, fade out. A year later, the baby is born. The little boy grows up, and as he is one day out in the field working with his father, The child complains of a headache. He walks back in the house, gets up in his mother's lap, and there in her arms he dies. The woman takes the little boy, carries him up the stairs, and lays him in the bed in Elisha's room. Elisha was not there. Elisha at the time was 16 miles away at Mount Carmel. And so the woman went to get the prophet. And as she reached Mount Carmel... She explained the situation to Elisha the prophet, and Elisha, who probably was a little bit older at this time, uh, was not going to be able to make it the 16 miles back to Shunem as fast as his younger assistant Gehazi would be able to. And so he took his staff, he handed it to Gehazi, and he said, get back to Shunem as fast as you can and lay the staff across the little boy. Elisha and the woman walked back to Shunem. He walks up the stairs into the room, and in a very unusual prayer meeting, Elisha prays for the little boy, and he comes back to life. That is the woman that is being referred to here. And Elisha comes to her and says, Ma'am, I want to give you a heads up. The Lord has revealed to me that there is going to be a seven-year drought, a seven-year famine. Now, when you consider that back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a drought or a famine that lasted only three and a half years under the ministry of Elijah, and people were dying as a result of the seven, I'm sorry, the three and a half year drought, he says to her, there's no way you're going to be able to survive this seven year famine, get out of town. And the reason that this famine came is because one of the covenant curses that God promised or warned his covenant people Israel with was that if you live in rebellion, I'm going to curse you with drought. Well, for a drought to come for a period of seven years, it was unheard of. Ma'am, you're not going to be able to survive. Go wherever you can go. The woman picks up her belongings and she and her household, along with her son, moved to the land of the Philistines for seven years. That is the woman that we are talking about. Picking up the reading then, in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 3, it says, And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now, The king was talking with Gehazi. Who was Gehazi? Well, uh, this is a really unusual conversation. First of all, the king's name is Jehoram, and he is a wicked king. 
He is the grandson of King Ahab. He is the grandson of Jezebel. He comes from horrible roots and he himself is a horrible king and he is very ungodly. And for some reason, in verse 4, the the king and Gehazi are having a conversation. And who was Gehazi? Well, Gehazi is available to speak to the king at this time because he himself is no longer in the ministry. He is now a defrocked clergyman and he is a leper. And the reason that he is a leper is because back in 2 Kings chapter 5, he tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman and was caught in the act of trying to extort that money and was turned into a leper. So you have this wicked king talking to this ex-clergyman. They're having a conversation and the woman who has now come back to the land of Israel, she has found out that her household has been confiscated probably by the government. Nothing ever changes. The government has her land and, and she's going to the king to appeal. And it says in verse 4, now the king was talking with Gehazi uh, the servant of the man of God saying, and I do not understand the next part of the text. I can tell you what it says, but it is just baffling to me as to why this would happen. The king says to Gehazi, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Now, why in the world this king of all people would want to know from this man all of the great things that Elisha has done, I don't know. It is baffling, first of all, because of who the king was. He was wicked. He did not follow the ways of God. Secondly, it's baffling because of who Gehazi was. He was one who used to be in the ministry and no longer, no longer is. It is also baffling because on a couple of different occasions, Elisha actually saved the life of King Jehoram and on a couple of occasions, King Jehoram tried to kill Elisha. So this conversation is very, very perplexing, but it is an integral part of the story of how restoration comes to this woman. Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, while, this is the operative word, the entire passage turns and hinges upon this one word, while, and while he was telling, that is, the Gehazi was telling the king, that is, Jehoram, how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, paint a picture in your mind's eye, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. So he's telling the story of the things that Elisha had done. And while he's in the middle of talking about the woman and her son, at that moment, the woman and her son walk in. Probably it went something like this. We don't know. Gehazi is standing there. I'm sure he is at a distance from the king, seeing as how he is a leper. We're not sure where it took place, whether it was in the king's throne room or whether it was outside. We don't know. All we know is that the king and Gehazi are having a conversation, and the king says, can you tell me the great works of Elisha? Gehazi says, well, you know, where do I start? 
I mean, first of all, when his predecessor, Elijah, was taken into heaven, Elijah threw his mantle from the chariot. You remember, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. His mantle fell down, and Elisha caught it. He was able to use that then to divide the river Jordan, and he walked from Jordan over to Jericho. Uh, when he got to Jericho, the water was bitter, and Elisha put salt into the water, and it became sweet. From there, Elisha traveled to Bethel, and as he is on his way to Bethel, there were some unruly young people who came out and mocked him because he was bald, and lo and behold, two she-bears come out of the woods, and they attack these young people, and they do what? They maul them to death. And King, there are so many other things that happened. In fact, you yourself remember, because you were with us when we went out on a military conquest, and as we were there, we ran out of water, and you remember how the water was provided. And you remember how one of our cities was, was surrounded, and you remember how Elisha blinded an entire army. And you remember the other case where there was poison in a stew, and he put some flour in the stew, and it became well. And there was another occasion where there was an axe head that fell into the river Jordan, and I'm telling you, King, I saw it. That axe head came right up out of the water. It, it floated right to the top, and I could go on and on and on. There are so many stories that I could tell you about Elisha. Elisha, who was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. But King, the greatest thing that I ever saw this man do is that there was a woman who lived over in Shunem who had a dead son. And I'm telling you, King, the son was dead. I mean, he wasn't sick. He wasn't injured. He wasn't wounded. He was dead. He was cold. He was purple. He was blue. He was laid out on the bed. I was in the room with his corpse, and I laid Elisha's staff upon the corpse. And lo and behold, Elisha comes in. He prays for the boy, and the boy comes to... That's him. That, that's him. That's the boy that was brought to life. Gehazi himself was shocked that at the exact moment when he is telling the story about the woman and her son, the woman and her son walk in and he says, Behold, O Lord, my king, that is the boy that was brought to life. Crazy story. Just, just, just crazy. Picking up the reading. I'll read verse 5 again. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, oh, oh, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. King, in verse 6, is a little bit skeptical wants to check this out. And when the king had asked the woman, just to make sure this whole thing wasn't choreographed, she told him, what did the king do? So the king, this wicked king, Jehoram, appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hurt, hers. That is our word for the day. Restoration. Restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, give her her house back, give her her land back, and give her everything that would have grown there over the past seven years. Now, how do we take this story 
and apply it to evangelism? Well, I have three ways that I think we can do that, and they all begin with the letter P. First of all, our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. Our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. What is providence? Well, providence, quite simply, is that God is is working all things together for good. Listen to the definition from the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary, which says that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures, end quote. And I think that this is correct. Providence means that God is in absolute control of all things, everything that happens, and that he is orchestrating Everything that happens from the movement of the largest planet down to the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between. The providence of God means that he is sovereign and that he rules over all. That he has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. That he limits, orders, controls, and knows everything. Or as the Westminster Confession says, that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And if that is true, then there is no such thing as luck. If luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. The God of the Bible does not. This past week, my team, the Georgia Bulldogs, became the national champions, NCAA football national champions, and they were playing Alabama. Alabama had beaten us seven straight times. In all seven of those meetings... I predicted that Georgia would win, and they lost all of them. And on Monday, as I was predicting who I thought would win, I said to myself, no, wait a minute, I have predicted that Georgia would win every time and every time that they they have lost. Now I'm going to predict that they will lose and maybe they will win. And I had to stop and I had to say, wait a minute, if you do that, What you are doing is you are being superstitious and you are thinking that you in some way are controlling the outcome of that game. That is believing in luck. I predicted that they would win and they won. And if you will invite me to come back, I will preach a sermon about the Georgia Bulldogs and how marvelous they are. But that's another sermon for another day. For today, we as Christians cannot be superstitious. We cannot believe in luck. To believe in it believes that God is not sovereign and that he does not act in providence. You see, he is sovereign. And there is nothing that is random. There is nothing that is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. And providence is a friend to restoration. So let me ask you, those of you that are good at math, What are the mathematical probabilities that after seven years, that is roughly 2,550 days, after seven years, at the exact day, the exact hour, the exact moment when Gehazi is telling the story of the Shunammite woman's risen son, that at that exact moment, 
the woman and her son would walk into the king's presence. It wasn't choreographed. It happened by providence. What are the chances? What are the odds? Are they 100 to 1? A thousand to one. A million to one. A billion to one. So you're telling me there's a chance. The odds are insurmountable that there would be a confluence of him speaking about the dead boy at the same time that the dead boy walks in after a seven-year period. On the other hand, I would say that the odds are not insurmountable. In fact, I would say that the chances are 100% of that happening if God is directing traffic. And conversely, I would say that the chances of it happening are zero if God is not directing traffic. But in this particular case, God was directing traffic and he brought the woman and her son into the presence of the king and Gehazi at the exact moment that Gehazi was speaking about the son. Providence. And sometimes the doctrine of providence gets a bad rap. Uh, Sometimes it is used or perceived to be an enemy of evangelism uh, by those who are opposed to or those who do not believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And what they will do is they will say to those who do believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, since you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, therefore you now have an excuse not to go and share the gospel with others because you say whatever will be will be. It doesn't matter whether I evangelize or not. And sadly, sadly, sometimes this criticism is well-founded because people who do believe in the sovereignty of God sometimes do not evangelize. But I would say that the exact opposite is true and that providence is a great friend to evangelism in that God is the one who is directing traffic. I want to submit to you that providence, the sovereignty of God, and our evangelistic zeal are not enemies, but they are very useful, close friends. And by that I mean every encounter that we have with every other human being during the course of our short little lives is by divine appointment. It might be a permanent appointment, such as your parents or your siblings or your children or your neighbor, or it might be a very temporary appointment, like someone you sit beside on the train or someone that you run into at work and everything in between. You see, not only are the encounters that we have with other people by design, but everything leading up to those encounters is for a purpose as well. Your background, your interests, your experiences. You are always where you are because God directed your steps to be there 100% of the time. And today, my challenge to you, evangelistically speaking, is this. Live in that awareness and view the encounters that you have with other people as God's direction for you to bring them the gospel that will save them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we should not be intentional in our evangelistic efforts and simply just wait for people to come our way 
Remember, this woman, this Shunammite woman, went, W-E-N-T. She went to the king. We should go out and intentionally evangelize. But whether we are going out intentionally to evangelize or we are just living life and providence is happening as providence is happening, it is all part of God's design. It's all part of God's plans. Every person that's in the room today is here by God's design. And so as we consider evangelism, let's live in the awareness that God is the one that is directing our steps to converge with the steps of unsaved people. You are where you are and you meet whom you meet for a reason. It's a divine appointment. Let me give you a a crazy example of how providence worked out in evangelism. I had a friend who was a Jewish atheist heroin addict. I tried for many years to witness to him. Uh, Long story short, this particular gentleman became homeless, and shortly after becoming homeless, he was hit by a car. This happened in another state. And after he was hit by a car, he was taken to a hospital for two reasons. Number one, uh, to get him dried out, and number two, to heal his wounds from being hit by a car. And so he was in this particular hospital, and he was uh, being cared for by a nurse. Now, here's the backstory: Because he was a homeless person at the time and had been wearing the same clothes for several days when he was taken into the hospital, uh, they simply had to take his clothes and they had to throw them away. They couldn't be worn again. He's in the hospital for several weeks, and he's being cared for uh, by this nurse. And it's time for him to be released But he's not going to be released back out into the streets. He's going to be released to a rehab center that is 40 miles away. The church, uh, the church, the, the hospital staff realizes that if this man is to be released, he's going to need some clothes because he's just been wearing a hospital gown for these several weeks. And so this nurse, who is not a Christian, goes to one of the friends of her parents who is roughly the same size as this man and says, can you just give me some clothes because this guy has to wear something when he leaves. And so the man leaves and he goes to the rehab center. When he gets to the rehab center, and I hadn't heard from him in a long time, when he gets to the rehab center, he says, here's where I am and here's what has happened to me. As providence would have it, The place where the rehab center was, was very near to a place where several of my friends who were Christians lived. And so I started a group text with 16 people on it, and I said, I have a friend who is not a Christian who is in this rehab center. Would you be willing to go by and visit him and witness to him and love him? Here's the story, heroin addict, hit by a car, detox, blah, 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 blah. One of the women, one of the women in that text group texted back and said, I know about this man. My daughter is a nurse. And for the past several weeks, she has been taking care of him. Then in that same group text, a man chimes in and says, is this the guy that I gave my clothes to? Yes, that's him. The man says, okay, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man, 
I don't know what he looks like, but I'll just go in the rehab center and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. Long story short, these 16 people go after this man with love. They go in and they take the gospel to him. There was one woman in particular who was so tenacious with the gospel that this guy called me up and said, I appreciate these visits, but you're going to have to call this one woman off. I mean, she's so aggressive with the gospel. Long story short, after several weeks, this man sees the love of God in Christ in these people. And he calls me up and he says, what are the chances that your friends would be in the same town where I am and that this nurse who loved me and cared for me so much that her parents would be among those that have been visiting me. And the man gave his heart to Christ and was, I believe, genuinely converted. How did that happen? It happened because God, in his sovereignty, arranged for a man to be cared for by an unsaved nurse and then to go to a rehab center in a region where there would be a collection of Christians and they would see that as an opportunity and they would go and they would care for his soul and witness the gospel to him. Now, I know that not all evangelistic encounters have that much obvious providence, but I would submit to you that all evangelistic encounters are providential and the people that are in your life are there for a reason. And so I would challenge you today to see the people that you meet with as providential meetings that have been arranged by God. Secondly, our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. Not only providence, but pain. Uh, what was the Shunammite woman's greatest pain? Well, without question, it was the fact that her son died. I don't even want to think about this or meditate upon this too long. I cannot imagine what this woman felt as she held this little boy in her arms on her lap and he died. I don't even want to think about what was going through her mind as she walked those 16 miles to Mount Carmel and then as she and Elisha walked those 16 miles back to Shunem. The pain that this woman must have been experiencing, I don't even want to think about it that long. But please consider that if it had not been for the pain of her losing her son, she never would have experienced the joy of seeing her dead son come back to life. And if there had not been this miraculous resurrection or resuscitation, then the king never would have given attention to the woman. I mean, there had been seven years of drought. I'm sure all kinds of people lost their property. And the woman would come to complain to the king and he would say, who are you? Well, I used to live here. Well, a lot of people used to live here, lady. You're, I mean, things are tough all over. I'm sorry, I can't help you. But the reason why the king was willing to give her an audience and to give her her property back is because there was something special about this lady. And that is that her son was dead and he came back to life. But that doesn't happen that doesn't happen without the pain of her son dying. The pain of her son dying led to, ultimately, her restoration. 
Consider the story of Joseph, and I know that you know it well. In the book of Genesis, if Joseph is not the favorite brother, then he is not sold into slavery. If he's not sold into slavery, then he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, then he doesn't get accused falsely of rape. If he doesn't get accused of rape, he doesn't go to prison. If he doesn't go to prison, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't know that dreams can be interpreted by Joseph. And if that is not known, when Pharaoh has his dream, he doesn't know to come after Joseph. Joseph doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dream, then Egypt squanders all of the produce during the good years. And if that happens, there is a famine throughout that region and Egypt doesn't have any food. If Egypt doesn't have any food, then his brothers don't come to Egypt looking for food. If his brothers can't find food, then his brothers die. If his brothers die, then his brother Judah dies. And if Judah dies, then there is no line of Judah. If there is no line of Judah, there is no King David. If there is no King David, there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's greater son, Jesus Christ, you're going to hell and so am I. Now you can look at that big picture and say, isn't it wonderful? Yes, it is wonderful. But if you isolate any one of those items, let's say a man being accused falsely of rape and being thrown into prison, and you say, what is the purpose of this pain? You're not going to be able to come up with an answer. But when we get in our Romans 828 helicopter and we lift off and we see the big picture and we acknowledge that God causes all things, including our pain, to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, then we can see that pain is part of the process that leads to restoration. For without the pain of the death of the son, then the king never would have heard her. I don't know what kind of pain you're going through right now. I don't. I don't want to downplay that pain and say, oh, it really doesn't hurt. I know that it does hurt. And I'm not going to stand in front of you and pretend to know why that pain is happening and to say, oh, well, here's why it's happening. I can explain it to you. I can't explain it to you. In fact, there is a chance in which you will never understand it on this side of glory. But here's what I can tell you with confidence. That pain is very much a part of the process which leads to God ultimately working out all of his purposes. What is the greatest pain that the world has ever known? The greatest pain the world has ever known that is 2,000 years ago in a place called Mount Calvary Jesus Christ, who had never done anything wrong, was nailed to a cruel, rugged cross. And there upon that cross, he was, suff- he was tortured and he suffered. He suffered pain such as no man has ever suffered. And not only physically was he suffering this pain, but he had the pain of having his perfect person be infected with our sin. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree, and as a result of that, he had the pain of enduring the wrath of Almighty God. Without that pain, 
you and I are not saved. Without that pain, our eternal pain is not taken away. So pain is not just part of the gospel message. Pain is the essence of the gospel message that we deserved that pain. We deserved it eternally, but Jesus took it for us. And in some way, Joseph understood this. That's why Joseph could say to his brothers when they came and asked for his forgiveness, hey, I don't want to you know, take it easy on you guys because you meant it for evil and that is bad. Anything that is meant for evil is bad. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good so that he might save many people alive. And you and I are among those people that are saved alive because of the pain of Joseph, but more importantly, because of the pain of Jesus Christ. And this Shunammite woman Well, pain was part of the process that led to her having restoration. So I would say this. As you go out and you have your providential meetings with whoever whoever it is that God has brought across your path, and maybe in the process things in your life do not go the way that you want them to go, Just know that God is in control and that God is in charge. And that perhaps that pain is a part of your experience to make you more sympathetic, more empathetic, more sensitive, more compassionate, and more understanding. Or maybe that pain is there for another reason. But just know that pain is not an enemy to evangelism. Sometimes it is part of the process. Which brings us to the final, the final point, and that is this. Our glorious message must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. So what do we have? Providence, pain, and power. But what is the power? Well, specifically, it is the power of a risen son. As I said earlier, the reason why the king was willing to restore her property is because There was a previously dead son who was now alive and at her side. And this wicked king says to himself, there is something special about this woman. Restore everything to her. Now follow the argument from the lesser to the greater objectively. If a wicked king, Jehoram, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, Gehazi, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know based upon a boy who was dead and is now alive, but a boy who would eventually die and stay dead permanently, how much more, arguing from the lesser to the greater, how much more will a loving, eternally good, intentional God not only grant restoration, but ultimate saving restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect eternal son standing by our side per proof of our justification a son who was dead but a son who will be alive forevermore it is the power of a risen son that gives oomph to our gospel paul says man I'm getting beat up. I'm getting the tar beat out of me. I've been whipped 
39 times, uh, thir- with 39 lashes, five times. I, I am, I, I, a night and a day I spent in the deep. I mean, I have to worry about the churches and, 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 and people are leaving me right and left. But I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Paul, why are you going to stay in the ring and keep preaching the gospel? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power. This isn't just an historical story where, where someone was dead and came back to life. Although that did happen. That is true. That is accurate. It's more than that. As you have your providential encounters with people and you're giving them this gospel story, you are giving them something that has supernatural power, miraculous power. And that is that that person is dead and they are disinterested and they want nothing to do with God. In fact, not only do they want nothing to do with God, they hate God and they're running from God and there's none who understands and there's none who does good. And then you bring them this gospel message and mysteriously, for reasons that they don't even know, they become interested in what you're saying. Why? Because that is the power of God unto salvation. And then more than that, what ends up happening is they become convicted of their sins. And then they become desperate for a remedy. And then they are granted faith to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then they are given this will to repent of their sin. What is that? That's power. That's the power of the gospel. Restoration comes through the power of a risen son who is alive and active and working to redeem his own. It's not just a set of facts that people understand, but it is the power of God working in them to bring them to life. This wicked king sitting up there, a guy who hates Elisha, a guy who hates God, sees this woman and a son standing beside her, and he grants full restoration. Friends, as you go out to share this gospel with people who seemingly want nothing to do with it, know that you are not just taking a set of facts, but you are taking the very power of God that is rooted in the objective truth that there is a risen son who is the ruler and king over all and who is active and tenaciously desirous to save his own, and he will. So go with confidence. Have those interactions with those whom God providentially will bring across your path. And give them that gospel, that gospel of pain that Christ died for their sins. But give them that gospel with hope that there is power, power to save. And God will save his people. So, we were people who needed restoration. And somehow, some way, providentially, God got that message to us. Does that not seem a little bit bizarre to you? Just, I mean, is that just not like a little bit out of the ordinary? Retrace your life. How was it that the gospel got to you? Wow. And you yourself, those of you that are saved, you know that power. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made you alive together with Christ, and now you're alive. 
May we go out from this place and take that glorious message of the power of the risen Son to a lost and dying world and then just watch what God does in bringing sinners to himself. All right, I, I don't even know how long I preached. I'm, I'm done. That's, that's enough. All right, Th- thank you for listening so attentively. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that someone came after us, gave us the message. Lord, may we now with confidence go out and take that message to those who need it. And Father, as we do, would you please be kind and allow us to see your elect come to faith through this glorious message. May we never be ashamed of this gospel, but Lord, may we watch it bring great restoration to those whom you have set your love upon. Be with us now, Lord, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.